Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. to cover during the presentation. So I want to make sure that I will review with all of you the four D's of fluid therapy, if you're not familiar with those, to kind of set the stage um, and what is appropriate fluid stewardship. The next thing we'll discuss is the phases of fluid therapy. And then finally, we'll wrap up the presentation by reviewing individual um, changes to fluid therapy that can improve patient outcomes. So I'd like to start off with a, a nice quote from Paracelsus. Um, so we're talking about fluids, and you might think those are benign, but the quote says that all things are poison and nothing is without poison. So it's the dose alone that makes it so that it's not a poison. I think that's very applicable to what we're talking about today. Fluids um, are necessary for patient care. They can improve patient outcomes, but they can also be very detrimental. So why do we use fluid therapy? Why is it so important? Well, generally, we're using fluid therapy for a specific purpose, primarily to replace intravascular volume when a patient's experiencing some kind of shock state. Um, they're not having adequate delivery of fluid to their organs and tissues from cardiac output. So generally, we turn to IV fluids to replace that intravascular volume. This, in turn, leads to an increase in cardiac output. We um, obtain better organ perfusion and oxygen delivery to the tissues and so forth. And we wind up with happy organs. They're perfused. They're happy. They're, lack, they're not undergoing ischemia or lactate production. And generally, hopefully, we have good patient outcomes with that. The detrimental part of that, though, is that eventually all that fluid leaks out from the capillaries. We call this capillary leak syndrome. You're probably very familiar with this. It leaks into the interstitium and the peripheral space, um, leads to usually interstitial edema and tissue hyperperfusion, because now we have a larger space that the oxygen from the blood-carrying blood um, corpuscles in the capillaries to transport that oxygen across now this edematous-filled space in the interstitium to the cells that need the oxygen, nutrients, and so forth. That can lead to poor organs and unhappy organs that are now ischemic and undergoing, you know, decreased perfusion, decreased oxygen delivery, decreased nutrients, and so forth. So we wind up with the same thing that we started with, only because of the opposite problem. We now have too much fluid um, on board in the patient and that can lead to detrimental outcomes. So that's really what we're gonna talk about you know, throughout the presentation, or at least my portion of the presentation for the next 20 to 25 minutes or so. So first up to cover one of our first goals is the four Ds. So one of the principles you have to know about fluid stewardship is that it includes the four Ds of fluid therapy. So those are essentially the drug, the dose, the duration, and then finally, de-escalation of fluid therapy. And we'll talk and wrap up the presentation, at least my portion of it today, with how we do or manage de-escalation of fluid therapy. The four Ds of fluid therapy can be related very closely um, for us as pharmacists to what we can call the four rights of fluid therapy. And I believe this was perhaps quote, quoted or coined by Dr. Um, Hawkins in, in a paper that he wrote that's cited here. So the four uh, rights of fluid therapy are the right dose, the right drug, um, the right uh, route, and then finally, um, the right timing or the right time to de-escalate therapy. So 
looking at uh, another aspect that very closely relates to the four Ds of fluid therapy are the phases of fluid therapy. And we do this or, or refer to this as the ROSE model of fluid therapy. So that includes resuscitation, optimization, stabilization, and finally evacuation or removal of those fluids. All of these phases are important and take place during the patient's stay in the hospital. Um, and they occur at distinct points. We'll talk about each of these four phases as we go through the presentation. But essentially, these are important to keep in mind because these are the phases that a patient goes through and they're part of the fluid stewardship assessment that we need to do for our patients to make sure that we're um, maximizing our efficacy from our fluid replacement therapy efforts, but then also minimizing the detrimental outcomes with that capillary leak syndrome, tissue hyperperfusion, and our unhappy organs um, and tissues as we go through finally the stabilization and evacuation phases. So before we move on, uh, we've talked about the four Ds um, of fluid therapy. I want to use that to get a kind of a sense from all of you of how your knowledge um, is so far. So we're going to do that by introducing a patient case that we'll come back to throughout the presentation. So I'll read off the patient case for you. So we have MV, a 68-year-old woman who was brought to the emergency department by ambulance after her husband called 911 because he could not arouse her. According to her husband, she had a four-day history of fever and chills and complained of painful urination and back pain. She complained of severe weakness this morning, and he was unable to arouse her one hour after she went to lay down. On arrival in the emergency department, her vitals are as follows, a heart rate of 104 beats per minute, blood pressure of 73 over 41 millimeters of mercury, a respiratory rate of 28, oxygen saturations of 82%, and a temperature of 39.2 degrees Celsius. She's 158 centimeters tall and weighs 72 kilos, so keep that weight in mind because we'll come back to that later on in the presentation. So a central line is placed um, and oxygen along with empiric antimicrobials are started per sepsis policy protocols. She's given a 500 ml bolus of intravenous fluid of 0.9% sodium chloride, after which her vitals uh, are as follows. Her heart rate is now 92. Her blood pressure is 89 over 54 mill mill millimeters of mercury. Respiratory rate of 24, oxygen saturation of 91%, and her temperature is 38.9 degrees Celsius. So she's rushed off for an emergent head CT to check for any neurological abnormalities. So the question I pose to all of you um, to get a kind of sense of your, your baseline knowledge is which of the following is the best recommendation for continued administration of IV fluid therapy over the next hour in our patient? Is it provide fluid boluses until 30 mLs per kilo have been administered, administer a bolus of 5% albumin, Change, the lactate, change to lactated ringers for fluid resuscitation, or provide fluid at a continuous rate of one to two mLs per kilo per hour. So I'll give you guys a few seconds to think about this. So the best answer is A, or choice number one, provide fluid boluses until 30 mLs per kilo have been administered. So we'll go over this as we go through the next few slides um, in our presentation. So let's first talk about, we'll go back to the four Ds and talk about the drug. So which drug, uh, you know, which fluid is best to use? Well, there are several major trials that have been conducted. One, the BASICS trial, the last one listed here in the table, was just published only a few months back um, in the summer of this past year, of this year. So many of these trials, as you can see from the p-values off on the right-hand side, um, show that there's really no benefit or difference between a balanced salt solution, which would be things like plasmolite, um, and, uh, and lactated ringers compared to normal saline. The only trial that has been shown to show a difference with a favorable outcome, more favorable outcomes um, of major adverse kidney events in the 30 days 
is towards balanced salt solution was in the SMART trial. And there are some differences between these trials when we look at the, the nitty gritty and compare the, the specifics. But overall, the literature doesn't really support one fluid over the other. Um, but again, a bit more favoritism toward balanced salt solutions. But again, um, doesn't seem to be uh, supported by the literature as to which one of these we choose for our patients. But what about colloids versus crystalloids? Is albumin um, or colloids better than crystalloids. So again, there's been some literature, again, large trials looking at this as well in, pop, in populations in the acute care setting, most of them in the ICU setting. Um, and again, as you can see from the relative risks and confidence intervals off on the right-hand side, not really a whole lot of difference in terms of outcomes between patients given colloids and 28-day mortality and patients given crystalloids. So again, the choice of fluid seems to be more favoring the, the uh, less expensive fluids, which we know are usually gen are generally our, our crystalloids. And again, we know that from other trials that albumin can lead to higher costs and other potential detrimental outcomes. Again, I know some of you are thinking there are specific patient populations that might be more favorable, favorably administered albumin um, or uh, normal saline compared to balanced salt solutions. But for the general um, approach in a pragmatic uh, setting, of the general um, uh, acute care patients uh, setting, uh, it seems that there's no difference in either of these fluid choices. So let's go over this a little bit more um, and look at dose next, our next D in the four Ds of fluid stewardship. So what I have up here is the main results, both 28-day and 60-day mortality from the original um, trial by Rivers, um, Emmanuel Rivers and goal resusc early goal resuscitated or early goal directed therapy for fluid resuscitation. And I'm sure we're all very familiar with the results of this trial, a very, very statistically significant difference in both 28 day and 60 day mortality in patients given early goal directed therapy, which is the light blue color in the graphs compared to patients giving standard approach for fluid replacement therapy, which is the darker blue colors. Um, and so again, it seems like it would be more prudent to give large volumes of fluid early on in the resuscitation phase of um, the ROSE model. But when this has been looked at on the next slide um, from other pragmatic conducted trials and multi-center um, using a more um, widespread patient population or more inclusive patient population from other trials that tried to replicate these results, the results weren't consistent. So you can see the outcomes off on the right-hand side for every trial except the original early goal-directed trial shows that there were no statistically significant differences in either 60 or 90-day mortality as the primary outcome of these other large randomized trials. But critics would point out that the difference might be in the amount of fluid that was given in comparison to these um, uh, patient groups. If we look at the trial by Emmanuel Rivers, you can see that there's almost a 20 ml per kilo difference in fluid administered between the early goal-directed therapy group and the standard therapy group in the first six hours. If you look at the other trials underneath that, there's not much more than a 10 ml per kilo difference, almost a doubling of the amount of fluid difference in the original trial. And then also, if you look at the amount of fluid administered over the next three days um, from that initial six-hour period of resuscitation, this would be our... our um, optimization and stabilization phases in the ROSE model, you can see that the difference is almost double the amount of fluid in the trial um, of early goal-directed therapy, the original trial by Rivers and colleagues, compared to the other trials that were, again, done in a more pragmatic setting. So there are critics that say that, again, the amount of volume, the amount of fluid does definitely matter. So that takes us to, well, what is recommended? And this goes back to our patient case. So I have up here, and many of you are thinking, yes, this is outdated. This is from the 2016 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. 
And the most recent 2021 guidelines came out only about a month after the slide presentation was put together. But the guideline hasn't really changed as far as this um, recommendation for the amount of flow that should be given in the first three hours. It's still 30 mils per kilo um, of crystalloid in the first three hours um, within that initial resuscitation phase, as recommended also in the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. The thing that has changed that I will point out is that it's now a weak recommendation in the 2021 guidelines compared to a strong recommendation um, that was proposed back in 2000, or that was recommended back in 2016 with the same low quality level of evidence. So that does support the, the guideline recommendations at least to use a large volume of fluid over a short period of time or administer that large volume of fluid um, early on during the resuscitation phase of patients experiencing um, a shock state. So next, I'd like to move on to discussing the next two phases of fluid therapy, the optimization and stabilization phases. So first, before we go into that, though, I also want to review some of the assessments that must be done um, to determine the right dose and duration um, if we're, when we're looking at fluid therapy. So it's recommended to use mostly dynamic assessments, so as compared to static assessments. And this is from the sepsis guidelines and the literature supports this as well. So static assessments, for those of you who might be unfamiliar, are mainly invasive assessments that have really fallen out of favor um, because of the literature showing that they don't improve or change outcomes in patients. So these were things such as pulmonary capillary blood pressure assessments, central venous pressure, and so forth. And again, the more dynamic assessments, which can usually be performed fairly easily at the bedside, especially for the first two listed here, um, such as a passive leg raise and fluid, ball, fluid bolus challenge, can be easily done at the bedside to quickly assess um, an adequate um, uh, uh, response from cardiac output um, in patients, and again, delivery of uh, blood flow and so forth to the uh, peripheral tissues. Um, one of the new dynamic assessments that's not listed here that are in the uh, 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines is to actually use capillary refill check. Um, so that's one of the new dynamic assessments recommended um, that are not listed on this slide deck. So let's check this a little bit by going back to our patient case. So following up with MV, her CT scan is negative for any abnormal neurological findings. She's given a preliminary diagnosis of urosepsis pending cultures. Her vitals upon return from the CT scan now are as follows. So her heart rate's now back up to 108 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is down a little bit more to 72 over 40 millimeters of mercury. Respiratory rate is 27 and oxygen saturation is 89% and four liters of non-rebreather. And her temperature remains elevated at 38.7 degrees. Her arterial blood gases show the following, a pH of 7.21, PaO2 of 60 millimeters of mercury, PCO2 of 29 millimeters of mercury, and a bicarbonate level of 18 milliequivalents per liter. So the decision is made to intubate and mechanically ventilate her because of hypoxia, metabolic acidosis with impending respiratory failure. So she continues to receive boluses of 0.9% sodium chloride, again, trying to obtain that 30 mils per kilo of fluid and is admitted to the ICU. So the question I have for you at this point about MV is which of the following is the best recommendation for assessment of fluid therapy responsiveness in her? Is it one, fluid challenge, two, central venous pressure, three, passive leg raise, or four, pulse pressure variation? So I'll give you guys a few seconds to think about this. So the correct or best answer is among these is passive leg raise. Again, we're trying to use dynamic assessments and some of these other ones besides fluid bolus challenge um, are, um, 
uh, not passive assessments. They're uh, they're they're not they're not dynamic or rather dynamic assessments. Um, and again, she's getting fluid boluses, so that's why the choice number one would not be a correct answer. So again, now we're going to move on to discussing the um, optimization and stabilization phases in the Rose model, and then we'll move into a little bit of my goal of reviewing individual changes to fluid therapy that can improve patient outcomes. So in the optimization phase, it's the next phase after resuscitation of the Rose model, we're really looking at maintaining um, tissue perfusion once we've achieved adequate intravascular volume um, and, and re resupply that volume back to the vascular space for patients in shock state. So we're really looking to maintain that organ perfusion and also avoid fluid overload. We don't want to give too much fluid to the patient so that we don't have that tissue hyperperfusion because of interstitial edema and accumulation of fluid in the third space. During the stabilization phase, this is usually a few days out after the patient's admitted, usually one or two days at least. Um, and we're usually looking to maintain vascular volume with ongoing fluid losses. So really they were talking about maintenance fluid and replacement fluids, but we've got to be careful about where that fluid comes from. So we have to consider all fluid sources. And so that's what I'd like to explore a little bit next. Where, do the, where does that fluid come from? So this is um, results of a study conducted um, by Dr. Bissell and some of her colleagues at the University of Kentucky, where they looked at uh, the fluid diluent that um, piggybacked uh, IV medications were administered through. So they looked at either, as you can see here on the left, saline or 5% dextrose as a base solution uh, or a diluent solution for these IV um, drug products. And what I'd really like to point out that they found is that look at the volume from the um, intermittent infused products, which is in the blue colors, compared to the volume from continuously infused medications, which is in the yellow, and you can't even see the, the amount of volume from the orange um, administered medications in dextrose. You can see that the vast majority of the volume comes uh, these, uh, in these piggyback medications um, comes from um, these intermittent infusions as opposed to continuous infusions, which, which might be counterintuitive thinking. You might think, oh, of course, most of the volume is coming from continuously infused medications, when in fact, they found that the vast majority was coming from these intermittently infused medications. This study recently published, again, through a, a single center study at the University of Maryland Medical Center, um, looked at it from a slightly different perspective. So they looked at cumulative medication volume by class over the first seven days of the patient's admission in one of their ICUs. And so what they did was they added up the total cumulative volume, as you can see from three major categories of medications, and then they used calculations to determine what the volume would have been if they had used the maximally concentrated um, preparations of those medications. And you can see that there's a drastic drop in the amount of total volume of fluid that could have been administered to these patients, thus conserving or minimizing that fluid excess during the stabilization optimization phases um, of the ROSE model. So this is one um, area of where we can make improvements to minimize that excessive volume during these critical phases of fluid resuscitation and fluid stewardship. The last study I wanted to share with you in this, uh, in this aspect was actually conducted um, by Dr. Hawkins and his colleagues at the University of Georgia. Um, and what they did was they looked for hidden fluids as well from some of these um, medications where you might not think patients are getting excessive fluid, such as uh, blood product administration, fluid in, uh, flushes, and also enteral nutrition. So what they did was they looked at patients, and I do apologize, there is an error that last um, section on the right should be day seven, of their hospital and ICU stay. 
but they looked at their fluid volume, total fluid volume administration over the first seven days, day one, two, three, and then day seven of the patient's admission. And they broke them down into tertiles of total volume administered from low, moderate, and high volumes of total um, IV fluid administration or fluid administration. And what they found in the dark blue colors was that from that hidden fluids, those flushes, blood products, enteral nutrition, and so forth, that it composed up to a quarter of the total volume of fluid that these patients um, accumulated throughout the day, regardless of how much their total volume was or regardless of which um, day in, uh, during their hospital stay the patients were in. So again, you've got to watch for where the sources of excess fluid may be coming from. It's not always from continuously infused medications. It's not always from maintenance IV fluids. It's usually a large number of it, and sometimes the majority from other sources. So let's turn back to our patient case to explore this a little bit more and, and apply what we just learned. So the morning of day two of her ICU admission, MV's vital signs have stabilized and her oxygenation and metabolic acidosis have improved. She's still intubated, but is no longer receiving supportive therapy and is planned for extubation later in the, uh, in the morning following a spontaneous breathing trial. She has a nasogastric tube in place, but remains NPO with no bowel movement since admission and continues to receive IV antimicrobials along with D5W half normal saline at a rate of 125 mLs per hour. She has also been receiving daily IV potassium and magnesium replacement. Her current weight is 81 kilos, remember she was 72 on admission, and she has notable pitting edema in her proximal extremities. So the question for you at this time is which of the following can be implemented at this time to minimize fluid overload in MV? Is it administer the antimicrobials via nasogastric tube, convert the maintenance IV fluid to 0.9% sodium chloride, replace any electrolytes using the enteral route, or reduce the dose of the maintenance IV fluid? So I'll give you guys about 10 seconds to think about this question as well. So the best answer here, based on what we just learned, is reduce the dose of the maintenance IV fluid. She's still NPO, so switching her antimicrobials and IV replacements at this point time with the pending extubation later this morning is not the best choice. Want to make sure she um, successfully is extubated. Uh, and changing the maintenance fluid uh, to 9% saline really shouldn't do a whole lot of difference at this point. So let's talk about the last D in the four Ds of fluid stewardship, de-resuscitation. So de-resuscitation usually occurs a few days out after the patient's initial resuscitation efforts begin, usually about two or three days um, out from that, but can last up to several weeks if the patient um, is admitted for that long of a period of time. And really here, the, the focus is on removal of that excess fluid to decrease that interstitial edema and tissue hyperperfusion. We have to be careful about not removing too much fluid because we don't want to put the patient in a volume depleted or at least, at least intravascularly volume depleted state. And there's two methods that we can use to remove this excess fluid and implement de-resuscitation. They're passive and active methods. So basically, passive de-resuscitation involves re minimizing or removing fluids that we're giving to the patient. So many of the things we just talked about, looking at excess fluids from um, other IV sources and so forth, stopping maintenance IV fluids, and basically, if the patient is able to, allow them to replace fluid on their own by drinking when they become thirsty. Active de-resuscitation involves using um, loop diuretics primarily to remove excess fluid using the, kid the functioning kidneys. So let's talk about active resuscitation just a little bit more from some trials. So the FACT trial was a trial done not to specifically look at active de-resuscitation, 
um, but it included about a thousand patients with ARDS, acute, uh, acute um, respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and it used a very highly um, uh, complicated protocol um, to both look at fluid management in these patients, but also de-resuscitation using diuretic therapy. Um, and the patients who had that protocol in the conservative strategy arm had about twice the, the amount of uh, loop diuretics utilizes compared to patients in the liberal or normal approach strategy arm. And you can see that their outcomes for their secondary outcomes of ventilator-free days and ICU-free days were much better in the conservative strategy where patients got more diuretics than those in the liberal strategy. They almost also met their primary outcome of, of a decrease in 60-day mortality, um, but again, it didn't quite reach statistical significance. The next trial I'd like to share, published more recently, uh, was actually done again by Dr. Um, Bissell and her colleagues at the University of Kentucky. And what they did was they used a protocol approach to diuresis. They took a two-year historical control and compared it to a one-year protocol interventional group. And you can see that the difference that they showed in um, fluid removal or fluid excess um, was dramatic in the protocolized interventional group compared to the historical control. And more importantly, they also showed a very significant impact on secondary outcomes that you see listed there. The only one that didn't quite meet significance was the ventilator-free days, but definitely had a trend and almost statistically significant result for that outcome as well. And so what I think this shows or demonstrates to us is that once again, it pays to use protocolized approaches to care, even regarding um, de-resuscitation, the use of diuretics and the management of IV fluids for patients. So let's go back to our patient case one last time. So on ICU day three, MV is written for transfer from the ICU to the medical surgical general floor. She's extubated and receiving a soft diet. Her antimicrobial therapy has been changed to oral dose forms and her maintenance IV fluids have been discontinued. Her current weight is still 78.5 kilos and she was producing 1.5 mLs per kilo per hour of urine on the previous day, but overnight her urine output has decreased to 0.8 mLs per kilo per hour. So which of the following is the best recommendation at this time to reduce fluid overload in MV? Is it bolus of IV fluid to improve her urine output? Resume maintenance IV fluids to improve urine output? Active de-resuscitation with loop diuretics or passive de-resuscitation with limited free water intake? So I'll give you guys a few seconds to think about this answer as well. So the best answer based on what we just reviewed is active de-resuscitation. She still has a lot of fluid on board based on her 78 kilos still compared to her dry weight of 72 when she came in. Um, and she just needs a little bit extra effort to get that fluid removal um, off of her. So how does we put this all together? Well, fluid stewardship, as you can imagine, is very complex, but does it need to be implemented or should be implemented in patients? Because it's very important because of the implications of both you know, how fluids can be efficacious and important to our patients in improving their outcomes, but also detrimental if it's not managed appropriately. We have to consider the dose, the uh, duration, um, the amount of fluids that come from hidden fluids, and then also how we remove that fluid um, with de-resuscitation. So some of the key points um, that I'd like you guys to take away from what I briefly reviewed with you is that fluids are beneficial, but they can also be detrimental and increase mortality. We've got to manage them carefully. We also have to look at the patient response very closely. We have to consider the drug, the dose, the duration, and again, how we're going to remove that excess fluid or get rid of it from the patient so that we don't have those detrimental outcomes and adverse effects and only see the positive benefits of fluid therapy. And finally, fluid stewardship should be an important part of what we do to manage fluids 
in patients. Um, it should be a part of routine patient care, including things such as protocols, like we saw with some of the literature, and it should include all members of the team, including pharmacy, as well as nursing, um, and physicians, and everyone involved. So very important to make sure we manage these fluids appropriately. Hey, thanks, Scott. Um, so today we'll talk about strategies to successfully implement fluid stewardship initiatives. Um, I'd first like to um, acknowledge and thank the trainees and members of the UGA Critical Care Collaborative or UGA C3. Um, if it wasn't for their time, commitment and investment, um, I believe that's you know what afforded me the opportunity to speak with you all today on this topic, um, as well as a current fourth year student, Ali Abdullah, um, for the development um, and assistance of, of the content that we'll go through today. So I'd first like to pose this question to you. So is, is this a medication error? And for those that can't maybe read the label, um, this is three amps of sodium bicarb that was put in one liter of 0.9% sodium chloride, um, or what many of you may refer to as normal saline due to years and years of false advertising. And in the background, you can see that this patient, um, in the, over the course of 24 hours of this fluid being infused, their serum sodium went from 146 to 156. So hopefully we all can agree that this is a medication error. The patient did have an adverse effect associated with that. Um, and it really just, you know, typically um, three amps of bicarb would be um, put in a liter of sterile water or dextrose 5% um, due to maintaining um, tonicity, as well as in this case, the profound hypernatremia. Um, and it really brings to question as we talk about fluids and their um, true impact on, on patient outcomes and um, efficacy and safety, um, the part of um, the Hippocratic Oath is that we first do no harm. And so as we move forward and um, some of the material that Scott provided on how we can um, improve patient outcomes with fluid therapy, um, what is the tone that we're setting as we talk about fluids and are they really perceived by the medical community um, as medications? And so I have, you know, kind of a schematic here. Um, if you look at the door to access the pharmacy where our medications are, um, you typically have to have a badge, badge access. At our hospital, we even have a pharmacy technician that sits at the front that can typically do a lot of the communication through a window, um, or they can they can buzz you in um, if they deem that appropriate. On the other hand, if you look at the supply room or the medication room, um, whatever you refer to it as on your patient care areas where the fluids are typically stored, the, the door is either unlocked or it's held open or the badge access is a pretty liberal, if you will. Um, lots of folks have access to it and it really doesn't set the precedent that the supplies in that room can significantly impact um, patient care. And I bring that up because um, this is a 2020 position paper on ICU pharmacy services um, on this slide and the next. And while it is specifically to ICU pharmacy services um, in general, I do believe that since we are talking more holistically about IV fluids and the ubiquitous use of those throughout all patient care areas, not just in the ICU, um, that a lot of the content specifically related to fluids from this paper um, is extrapolated or can be extrapolated to other patient care areas outside of the ICU. And so the first I want to bring um, to your attention here, and I'll paraphrase, uh, the pharmacist prospectively evaluates drug therapy 
And then it goes on to say, for effectiveness and adverse events and intervenes as needed. And so the two things I want to really highlight here is that they prospectively evaluate and they look at the effectiveness and adverse events and they intervene. And this is deemed to be a foundational um, pharmacy service for facilities providing all levels of care. Um, so no matter what type of pharmacy services um, your health system provides, um, this should be a foundational um, service that, that your pharmacy um, can offer. And if we look at the availability, the readily accessible fluids um, that are in patient care areas, it doesn't, nece it doesn't necessitate a pharmacist to prospectively evaluate uh, the fluid selection. A lot of times I'll have nurses come to me in the on the floor and say, you know, hey, I just hung this bag of normal saline, um, a one liter bag. Can you put that order in? Right. And I have lots of questions. I have lots of thoughts. I have lots of opportunities for recommendations and intervention because I am trying to prospectively talk about the efficacy and the adverse events and safety, et cetera. But because of their um, ease of accessibility, it makes it difficult to prospectively evaluate some of that. Um, second, the pharmacist provides routine stewardship activities. Um, this is also considered to be a foundational pharmacy service for facilities providing all levels of care. And so a lot of the other things that we'll talk about today um, over the next 20 or so minutes, as it relates to implementation of stewardship services or activities, um, not all of them need to be adapted into all patient care settings and all health system types, um, but you can implement some of those. And so as you look for, um, forward and maybe more prospectively, and again, some of the content that Scott covered already, is the pharmacist performs independent patient assessments. Now this is considered foundational for facilities providing comprehensive ICU care, and it is desirable for all others. And so I believe this position paper really highlights that the type of institution that you're in and the services that you provide um, really gives you some flexibility in what your um, fluid stewardship practice and initiatives may look like at your institution. Successful implementation of fluid stewardship services is, is multifactorial. It should happen on multiple levels. Certainly at the patient level, uh, which Scott did a really good job of really identifying and describing the ways that we can specifically intervene in patients. Um, but you also need some infrastructure and support at the unit level. And then at the health system level, you need further infrastructure to support the sustainability um, of these initiatives um, consistently and across the institution. So I'd like to pose this question for you all. What tools and resources that you currently have? So take a moment to think about that and consider all of the following, um, and even further than that, some examples that I've listed, including documentation, um, types of fluids that you have available, devices, capabilities of patient monitors, um, et cetera. And as you guys take this mental note of all the um, tools and resources that you have at your disposal and available to you, um, I'm not going to bring them up right now, but I do want you to keep them in the back of your mind because we will refer back to them several times um, for the rest of, of our discussion. So how about patient level fluid stewardship practice? And this is a picture of, of me uh, after a car accident a few years ago. And I wanted to tell you a brief story um, around this situation to really highlight the impact of patient patient level stewardship. Um, I was in the emergency department getting my you know trauma workup after my accident. 
And the nurse brought in a liter of normal saline and was about to hang it when I first, when I questioned what was the indication for the fluids. Um, and she said that it was so that I could get my IV contrast. Now that opens a whole can of worms, right? Do I believe that IV contrast or contrast nephropathy exists? Um, do I believe that I was at risk for developing contrast nephropathy? And does a one liter bag of saline really mitigate that risk if it was deemed necessary for myself? And so I asked if I tried to avoid getting the IV fluids um, in general. And she had to go speak to the provider. Provider, um, third hand, the nurse came back and said, sorry, you know, you got to have the contrast. And in order to get the contrast, you got to have the fluid. And it was a pretty matter of fact conversation. So then I turned on my second wheel of negotiation and said, well, if you're going to give me fluid, I would at least prefer that you swap it out for lactated ringers. And uh, the nurse actually said, well, I don't think we need to do that because we give every patient normal saline. And I you know, challenged her again. She went back and talked to the provider and came back with a liter of normal sal um, of lactated ringers, excuse me. And then as she was hanging, um, hanging the bag, she asked, you know, why I preferred lactated ringers over saline. And so I obliged. She sat down um, and I told her a little bit about my thoughts and personal opinions about fluid choice. Now, I don't know if that hospital um, that I was at had a emergency uh, medicine pharmacist practicing in general or at that time specifically. Um, but those are the types of questions and interventions and recommendations and conversations that we as pharmacists need to be having. Um, to advocate for our patients and patient care areas. And I think that is a, is a good example of the types of interventions and, and discussions that we can be having. Now, here's a schematic of a patient level assessment. Um, this is um, a schematic that we produce that will be in AJHP um, in the coming couple months. And I don't want to really go through that because, again, you can, you can find it later um, and have it at your disposal. But what it does really highlight is how you can assess patient level fluids. Um, every patient has fluids. They have intentional fluids potentially that we may be giving them um, on purpose. And then as Scott alluded to, we also give patients a lot of hidden or discrete fluids that we need to be very mindful of. So lots of considerations, um, opportunities for improvement, uh, evaluation and, and change to the patient's uh, fluid therapy. So then what resources do you have available and how can you utilize those resources and adapt them or adapt your fluid stewardship initiatives to what you already have readily available? Now, certainly as you assess what tools and resources you have available to yourself, I'd also recommend that if you find that you, there are things that you don't have that you need um, to certainly go through um, the process of requesting and trying to acquire those. So um, the picture at the top, this is the hospital that I or typically work in. This is a 450 bed um, community teaching hospital. It's the flagship hospital um, in the southwest region of Georgia. And I typically work in a 12 bed medical ICU. And again, I don't have any conflicts of interest or disclosures, um, but just due to availability of resources um, and my experiences. Um, this is a picture that I took with my cell phone and um, in the ICU one day. And this is a picture of a device that I use um, within my fluid stewardship practice to help guide some of my decisions. So I have a lot of information here about hemodynamics, uh, maybe fluid responsiveness on the patient level. And again, I adapted my fluid stewardship practice to the resources that were available to me at my institution. 
Um, and I'd used this practice for six or seven years in my ICU. And then uh, last March, when the COVID pandemic swept through, um, we actually we took a sister hospital that had initially been reallocated to administrative offices, and we resuscitated this hospital into an actual patient care area. And so I shifted my practice site over to a 25-bed COVID ICU, and we did not share resources um, other than staff and personnel from one hospital to the next. So I didn't have some of those other devices that I was accustomed to using in my fluid stewardship practice. But um, after talking to some of the healthcare professionals on the team and poking around in the room and playing with the monitors and other things, um, as you can see here on this patient monitor um, with my index finger, I did find that if a patient had an arterial line, that I could change some of the settings on the screen so that it displayed the pulse pressure variation. Now, this is not something that I had at my disposal at my primary institution, um, but at this new hospital in my new ICU, I could now use this um, on basically every patient since most all of them had arterial lines. And so I adapted my fluid stewardship practice to the resources that I had available to me. And I use this as an example uh, because you certainly, um, based on your assessment of resources you have, you can use those to create or adapt your stewardship initiatives. I'd also typically ask the audience to raise their hand if, they, if their um, institution per, um, provided or performed antibiotic timeouts. Do you do them on every patient, every day, every 48 hours, every 72 hours, um, every 72 hours after an antibiotic is initiated and so forth? And that really highlights that you can take a stewardship initiative and it can look differently at different hospitals or even specifically in different patient care areas as an antibiotic timeout may be differently practiced in an ICU setting versus on the floor. <clears throat> and we perform these antibiotic timeouts because they've been shown to change or improve the documentation of the plan for antibiotics and reduce the inappropriate therapy for antibiotics. Um, they didn't necessarily decrease the duration of antibiotics on the inpatient setting, but everyone was aware of the plan and the goals for those antibiotics, which overall helps with accountability um, and clear communication of what that plan is from day to day for continuity and transitions of care. So can we perform a fluids timeout? Can we do this on every patient every day, uh, maybe on every patient that just has intentional fluids, whether they're being bolused or maintenance fluids or actively diuresed? And I have here a couple questions that you could consider asking or some kind of checkpoints as you go through to really talk about, you know, are they on fluids? What is our goal of therapy? I think you'd be surprised that when you ask the question, this patient is on this fluid, what is the goal or the purpose of this fluid that we're trying to achieve? And a lot of times you'll see a lot of blank stares because no one can answer the question because they're practicing anecdotal medicine and not evidence-based medicine. Um, so again, just something that you can think of. I don't have formal fluid timeouts um, in my health system, but I do informally um, make sure that I go through a lot of these checklists every day on every patient in my ICU at least. And being in a community hospital setting um, that's not an academic medical center, but even sometimes in academic medical centers, um, I think it's extremely important that you get buy-in from all members of the team and upper administration. So this is kind of where the meeting of the implementation practice at the patient, the unit, and the health system level really come together. Uh, you may have folks that are on rounds that 
maybe get a little bit aggravated when you talk, when you try to have a fluids timeout on every patient every day, because they have other responsibilities they need to get to. They don't really see that they have a role in fluid stewardship. And it's just the pharmacist that keeps asking these same questions every on every patient every day. But really incentivizing them, empowering them that they can participate in some of these initiatives um, can really improve your um, success for implementing and sustaining some of these practices. Oh, I'm sorry. So what fluids do you have stocked on your floor? Um, the picture that I have on the right is a, a picture that I took from um, one of my patient care areas. And on the bottom in this really large green bin, we have one liter bags of normal saline. In the top right gray bin, we have 500 ml bags of normal saline. And then in the top left gray bin, we have one liter bags of lactated ringers. And so if you just walked in the room and looked at this um, situation that you have in front of you pictured here, it kind of sends a message um, and it really reflects what our current practice of fluid choices or the size bags that we tend to use. And so if you're really trying to gauge what you should do or what your current practice is, I would recommend that you just go start by looking at the fluids that you have available, um, the different types and bags of fluids and the PAR levels of each of those. Because I think we really send a message, especially when we have either new practitioners or traveling practitioners during this um, time. If they're requested to go into a, this uh, supply room and get a bag of fluids, we are setting them up. We are subconsciously really leading the witness, if you will, to grab a bag of saline, whether it's a 500 or one liter bag. But probably they're going to reach for the bag that has the most in there. And so this really does um, impact some of your opportunities and also your challenges that you're faced with uh, when you begin implementing some of these practices. So we can control the supply and or the demand. Um, so I'll start with kind of the demand, right? If you start implementing patient level stewardship initiatives and you start really pushing for plasmolite, for example, a if you need, if you're going to recommend plasmolite, the team is going to have to wait for the order to be put in and for pharmacy to tube that up, at least at my institution. Because as you could see in the picture before, we only have lactated ringers and normal saline in the ICU setting. So for the sake of time, the level of instant gratification and convenience, they're going to opt to ignore, to not accept your recommendation because they need a bag of fluids now. So if you continue to push and push and get those recommendations accepted for using the less convenient fluid choice um, or maybe the fluids that just they're not as accustomed to using. Over time, you will increase the demand and you and others will start requesting that they change the stock and the inventory and the par levels of what's available and readily available for them. Um, another option we can do is we can control the supply. And I use this example for controlling the supply, where if you build it, they will come, right? Instead of first building the demand, just change the inventory that you have available to your staff in the, in the medication room. And I use dopamine in a code card as a perfect example. We all know that dopamine is not the most ideal choice as a vasopressor, but if you're in a code situation um, and they request a vasopressor, you can get the materials and you can make a vasopressor infusion or you can get the pharmacy to tube you one up. But again, it's not convenient. It's not readily available. You don't have the instant gratification for giving it to them immediately. 
And especially if a pharmacist isn't involved um, in your code team at your institution, the opportunity to make the um, vasopressor infusion at the bedside probably doesn't even exist very often. And so what do we do? We conveniently grab the premixed dopamine and we hang it. Then the patient comes to me or comes to the ICU and then you have them in VTAC um, because again, there's some side effects associated with dopamine that make it less optimal, but we have created the culture of using dopamine in that situation because it is convenient. It's readily available and we can do the same thing with fluids. Another example I'll give you is how we can adapt to our location. And so here on the left, you see a vending machine um, that's in a high school and you see it's full of snacks and candies and drinks. Um, and on the right hand side, you see a vending machine that is full of technology. This is a, a vending machine at the airport um, that's full of cell phones and headphones and phone chargers and batteries, etc. So we use the same principle of this vending machine type dispensing device, um, but we change what is in it based on the, um, the location and our, quote, target audience. Now, I'm not... Um, now we have a picture of a medication dispensing cabinet, whatever brand you use at your institution, you can fill in the blank here. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we take over all of our space in our med, in our dispensing cabinets with fluids. I think our nursing colleagues would hate us if we did that, but it still gives you the same um, general principle, right? We can take these different dispensing cabinets or medication or supply areas in our patient care areas and adapt what is in those areas based on our target audience or the patients that are in those areas. So I'd ask, what are some differences between units at your hospitals? So whether it's the ICU and the emergency department, your pediatric floor versus your adult med um, medical ward, um, et cetera. So I'll give you a few minutes, a few seconds to think about that. So hopefully you come up with a few different examples, some examples that I came up with um, for our institution or maybe just um, that could be kind of thought of in a more unanimous fashion. Um, Piperacillin tazobactam or PTZ, we do four hour extended interval infusions everywhere in our hospital except in the emergency department. Manitol um, versus hypertonic saline if you're in the ICU versus on the um, in the emergency department. Maybe the PAR levels of oral furosemide um, if you're on the floor or in the cardiac floor versus the PAR levels of IV furosemide, uh, maybe in a cardiac ICU. Um, IV pumps across the hospital, but syringe pumps are in the neonatal ICU. And then maybe the size bags that we use or that we make available in the pediatric floor versus on our adult floors. And so how can you use this um, practice that we already have and translate that to fluid stewardship practice. And so I, you could use maybe one liter or 500 ml bags of fluids um, in maybe the ICUs and everywhere on the floor or in a cardiac floor, maybe you use 250 ml bags or 500 ml bags. You may change your um, fluid selection to more favorably balanced, um, balanced crystalloids in most of your patient care areas. Um, but maybe in your neuro or trauma ICUs where you may have traumatic brain injuries or um, ICP issues, you may want to maintain um, higher levels of normal saline for, from the basics trial that was recently put out and maybe some other data. 
that would suggest maybe saline is better than some of our balanced crystalloids. So you can change the fluid type, the fluid selection, the size of the fluids that you have based on the patient care areas um, that you make them available. I then ask what protocols and order sets do you currently have available that might contain IV fluids? So I'll give you guys a couple seconds um, to think about that. So you may have protocols that are disease state specific, like a DKA or a sepsis protocol, or you may have protocols um, or policies, procedures, et cetera, that are or order sets that are more geared towards specific medication therapy. You may have an anthotericin um, order set or IV contrast or maybe something with certain chemotherapeutics. And so I'd ask, you already have these protocols and order sets in place. So how can you leverage these to start your fluid stewardship initiatives on a more unit or health system level, right? Do you need to reevaluate these protocols to see what fluid choice they give? Um, some, uh, some other examples that you can um, use, you know, think about IV and PO conversions or uh, what you have that are already built into those order sets. Um, do you have automatic stop dates? I know we have a 48 hour stop date for paralytic infusions or a 24 hour um, stop date for physical restraints that need to be renewed. Can you include automatic stop dates for bags of IV fluids? Um, instead of having boxes pre-checked where they have um, where they have to opt out of fluid therapy, um, can you uncheck it so that you request them or you require them the prescribers to opt into that fluid therapy? Um, I think we've done a good job as pharmacists overall for deprescribing. Um, antipsychotics for ICU delirium or beers list um, items or maybe stress ulcer prophylaxis at those um, areas or times of transitions of care. Um, and then also some area that Scott alluded to um, and that Brittany will allude to later is some de-resuscitation strategies. And I mentioned IV fluid therapy or IV to PO conversions, which we talk about, we probably do all the time. And you think, well, how in the world does that um, impact or how is that included in fluid stewardship? But again, some of the data that, um, that, we've, that we've found um, that Scott highlighted as well is that hidden fluids um, or discrete fluids really impact and influence and contribute a lot of fluids um, to a patient's overall fluid balance and um, fluid administration over the course of each day, um, ICU stay, hospital stay, et cetera and can significantly contribute to the incidence of fluid overload. Uh, not to mention all of these flushes that we see, you look, you see the par level of those in our med room. Um, they are everywhere, right? They're not even in the med room, they're in nurses' pockets. I mean, honestly, I keep them in my pocket as well when I'm in, on the floor. Um, and it really just shows you, and especially if you think all of these syringes are quote, normal saline. Right. And if you have a patient that's on a, on a, a salt restricted diet, you're going to immediately overcome that salt restricted diet, those strict requirements with just 17 flushes. And if you think about the flushes before and after each medication or after a bunch of medications, um, <clears throat> those these um, these these flushes really add up. And I think you'd be surprised. And again, some of the data that would support this at just how much they contribute to overall fluid balance. 
And finally, we have this education board. Now, the patient level ex um, example that I gave when I was the patient, where the nurse sat down and I talked with her about why I didn't want I didn't want fluids in general, but why I also didn't want saline. And she walked away from that, you know, really with her eyes opened to um, the differences that fluid choice can really make in patient care. Um, and the pharmacy education boards, I think they really gained some hype in the emergency um, in the emergency department. And I'll give credit to some of my Twitter colleagues, Chilla, PharmD. Um, and I think they also have another um, Twitter account for things I learned today in the ED. So um, definitely check those out. I want to give them credit. That's where I first learned about it. Um, and I did um, use this board um, with their permission. But nonetheless, you know, companies pay really big money for these huge billboards on the side of the interstate to advertise information. And they spend those that big money because it works, right? Just make the information available. Um, I'm sure there's data for that in the marketing world. I don't know if there's data already about pharmacy education boards, whether they improve the um, acquisition or the retention of knowledge. I think that's probably a great study to look at in general. But it's at least a free billboard that you can put up in different patient care areas. And you can quickly and readily change the content on these education boards to really reflect maybe newer evidence or maybe best practices or even your efforts if you get new policies or procedures or if you update order sets related to fluid therapy. Um, you can really impact at least the awareness um, of fluid stewardship in your in your patient care areas and at your health system. And so finally, I want to leave you with a few takeaways. <clears throat> um, sustained success requires multi-level support, right? You need infrastructure. Um, you need um, the motivation, the infrastructure, the support at the patient level, the unit level, and at the health system level for it to be effective, successful, and sustainable. And I can't further emphasize that buy-in from other health professions is extremely key to this. Take inventory. I think the first step to figure out what you're going to do is to first see what you have available to you. And then you can do a gap analysis or a needs analysis and figure out what you need to be successful. And you can go through the ropes to request and acquire those resources. Um, but also you can create your fluid stewardship initiatives, create your goals and objectives and implementation strategies and your education initiatives based on some of the resources that you do already have available. Um, it may take a little bit of inquiring, right? I gave you the example where I changed practice sites in the heat of the pandemic, and I had to change the way that I practice fluid stewardship just because I took inventory of what I had available to me. And then lastly, I just want you to walk away from this being encouraged, right? You already have lots of different foundational practices for different pharmacy services. You have protocols, you have order sets, you have lots of different things that you've done. You change the PAR levels um, of different medications and access to different medications in patient care areas at your institutions already, right? Um, we talked about some of the examples of that. So use some of those examples to gain leverage and to use as a template to further implement strategies to be successful with your fluid stewardship initiatives. Um, so with that, I uh, thank you again for your time and I'll turn it over to Dr. Bissell. 
And I'm going to focus specifically on protocol and policy development for systemic adoption of fluid stewardship. Now, this could be done in a number of different ways. Um, today, I'm going to focus specifically on the de-resuscitation phase and um, a protocol that we developed within our institution and maybe encourage the audience to think through how they could do so or something similar within their institution. So when talking through development of policy or protocols within your institution, I think personally of four key steps um, that you really have to think through as far as timeline. Um, definitely the most robust of these would be the development phase, which we'll spend the most time on. Um, but I also think it's super important to continue the evaluation and update of these protocols over time as they can easily become outdated. So moving into um, the development phase uh, of, of, the, um, of the process. So really it's important to do um, an assessment of your, your current strengths, weaknesses, and then potentially opportunities and challenges in the, in the future. So at our institution, when we were assessing you know, our current strengths, we had a high clinical pharmacy presence um, and, and we still do. So we knew that was a definite strength in trying to implement a pharmacy driven protocol. We have experience with protocols like this and our electronic medical record um, was really a valuable asset, at least for us, for potential um, utilization and, and incorporating protocols. Um, weaknesses, um, we weren't really um, sure of the, the current fluid balance metrics that were being utilized at the institution, and really probably a lack of education overall, um, which may be something that you see with your providers or nursing staff as well. Um, as far as opportunities, um, more and more data keeps coming out as um, the two co-presenters have talked about in regards to volume management and volume overload and the potential clinical impact of that. Um, and also a lot of funding opportunities out there, especially if you're thinking about pharmacy-driven protocols. ASHP um, has specific opportunities available and a lot of different organizations, um, pharmacy-specific organizations, really are willing to help fund some, some, some type of protocol that will um, show innovation in and overall improve patient care. Um, potential um, challenges that, that we knew we were going to face moving forward just based on our experiences and, and what we kind of forecasted moving forward. Um, documentation, uh, at least, is, can always be a potential challenge, in my opinion. Um, drug shortages as well, as probably no one um, listening to this call is unfamiliar with. Um, other pr uh, protocol changes and how that may impact things. Um, something that did happen with our protocol is we changed the electrolyte protocol in the midst of the onset of our diuresis protocol. So that obviously influences um, the diuretic protocol or the, the approach to diuresis in an institution without really thinking of it necessarily um, when development of the protocol um, right away. And then nursing staffing. I think especially a lot of us are sensitive to this now um, since the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there's a lot of considerations for if we're using our nursing colleagues, if we're relying on our nursing colleagues for a bedside protocol, um, what's their time frame like? What, what, do they, what kind of time do they have in their day? How stretched are they? Um, and are they going to be able to help us optimize the use of such a protocol? And then, of course, within the development phase, it's important to look to the literature. So I'm not going to delve too much into this. Again, um, Scott and Anthony did a great job of really talking through the literature when it comes to volume overload. Um, but specifically for me in development of this protocol, I think it's important to understand how do we diurese these patients? How do we how do we utilize de-resuscitation? Um, and I know when I was trying to develop this protocol, this was um, honestly the pub screen, um, the PubMed screen that I, I, I was um that resulted when I tried to look at potential options for how I would implement diuresis in, in patients within the ICU. You'll see there are four, um, four results that came in, and none were super, super helpful for me. We'll kind of talk about what we were able to find and, and where we went from there. 
So um, as Scott had mentioned earlier, the FACT trial really is probably the hallmark trial when it comes to the use of diuretics um, within the critically ill population specifically. Of course, this doesn't necessarily apply to our, our floor populations. Um, but if we're trying to start within the ICU, we, we really have to rely on this protocol, at least initially, um, to try and develop some type of dosing algorithm um, moving forward. There's a lot of limitations with the FACT trial if you were to try and implement um, their dosing regimen at bedside, specifically the use of really dated uh, monitoring parameters and a very complex treatment algorithm, which is very difficult to implement at bedside. So when trying to find other options, um, you can look to the current data surrounding de-resuscitation. So um, Silversides and colleagues published um, a couple years ago now, uh, really characterization of de-resuscitation in patients um, within the intensive care unit specifically and patients receiving mechanical ventilation. Um, and the study was interesting in that they found that 30-day mortality was associated with day three fluid balance. But what I found most intriguing as a pharmacist that's interested in this area, um, less than 30% of their total patient population actually received any dose of furosemide. Um, and that went up to day three um, in alignment with that day three fluid balance. And if you tried to look at, okay, what was the dose that they used? Can we start, can we choose our starting doses on the basis of what maybe this trial did um, or what this population was doing? The total furosemide dose between the first three days was a median of, of zero milligrams. So really not a lot to go off of when trying to, you know, utilize that literature and kind of bring it forward. However, I think it's important to note um, that they specifically looked at what correlates with day three fluid balance and what are the predictors of day three fluid balance. So if we're trying to target, you know, fluid stewardship and really decreasing fluids and, and doing so pharmacologically, when we look at what the predictors were for day three fluid balance as demonstrated here on the screen, um, total furosemide dose was highly predictive um, of that day three fluid balance showing a negative correlation um, at day three per 10 milligrams. Now, I will note renal replacement therapy was not. Um, and then, of course, your day one to day two fluid balance is going to impact that day three fluid balance. So um, this just goes to show us, again, limited data surrounding really the early selection of furosemide dosing um, based on the current literature that we have available specifically targeting de-resuscitation. Um, and so really having to rely on other potential sources um, of, of, of data. This was a study that I have to include because it was actually a study at our institution. I'm kind of calling us out, really. Um, but we we studied, and I, I believe Scott mentioned this, this study earlier, but we, we looked at diluent selection within our intensive care unit. And I, I call the study back out again because we did report day seven um, um, volume status as, as well as diuresis. And you'll see here um, that in our, our patient population, you know, in a study that we were specifically looking at, at diluent selection and, and really hyper-awareness of our fluid status, only 15% of our patient population received diuresis. And at day seven, on average, our patients were still about one and a half liters net positive. So you can be very involved in fluid stewardship and still be missing certain components of that fluid stewardship paradigm. So there's a lot of different considerations, which is why de-resuscitation is something that's really important to me. And I think something that should always remain a consideration. So we're really left with limited data um, from, you know, our clinical um, trials and, and so forth. So, of course, as pharmacists, it's important to, okay, let's assess the PKPD. What do we know about um, specifically the use of diuretics um, within the critically ill or within the general medicine population? Um, and does that help us drive um, the protocol that we're going to use? Can we, can we implement a protocol on the basis of known PKPD data? 
Well, um, unfortunately, another limitation specifically in the intensive care unit population, there's only really one PKPD study that's been done specifically in patients within the ICU. Um, and it's a study listed here on the screen that looked at 30 patients within the intensive care unit that didn't have pre-existing renal impairment. Um, they basically sought out to see what is um, the predictor or what are the predictors of urinary output response um, in patients that are receiving IV diuretics. Um, specifically furosemide. Creatinine clearance was associated with urinary furosemide excretion and was ultimately the only predictor of output. And this was most significant in patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 40. Um, so again, this, this, uh, this study did look at other variables, failed to find any real great predictors of urinary output response outside of that baseline creatinine clearance. So central venous pressure, uh, BNP values, urinary sodium excretion, really none of those associated in this study um, with that response to urine out or that urinary output response. Now there's some limitations with the number of patients that were included and so forth. But again, when trying to develop a protocol um, with good intentions, really trying to drive practice, um, to positive change, you can. Um, I'm sensitive to the fact that you you really need to be able to rely on some kind of evidence or look to evidence to, to start. And sometimes it's not always there. Um, and the question then becomes, what do we know as pharmacists? How do we make decisions on the basis of our our knowledge? I, you know, it's something that I always tell my residents: we are the experts in this area, right? And this is what we are trained to do. And so, um, really, we relied on that when developing our protocol. And I think all pharmacists um, involved within clinical scenarios really can. can and do the same. So again, um, really looking through and thinking through loop diuretics. I'm sure most um, individuals listening today, um, this, is, this is common knowledge as to how loop diuretics work, but um, really that inhibition of the sodium potassium chloride um, co-transporters um, are the main mechanism for this specific class. Um, and because of their um, typical uh, use in the ICU because they are probably the most efficacious agent that, that we utilize in the ICU, we decided to select those as our, our first-line agent um, within our protocol. So I want to take a minute for everyone on the call to kind of think through what a fluid stewardship protocol look like at their institution. Would it focus on de-resuscitation? Do you still have a lot of work to do, um, maybe on the positive side of things, so early fluid selection or maybe even IV to PO exchanges and things like that. So take a minute to think of, of really maybe what protocol would be most useful at your institution. So next up, um, I want to mention the, the stakeholder aspect of this. Now, this part of my presentation doesn't have a ton of slides dedicated to it, but I would agree, um, especially I think Anthony was talking about this just not too long ago, about how important it is to really um, involve your stakeholders within these processes. Um, and I completely agree. So next step, in my opinion, earliest you can to really involve the stakeholders that are, are, are pertinent to, to the subject um, or the, of the protocol. So for me, diuresis protocol at our institution, of course, nursing, we wanted to be able to utilize nurses really into um, elevate the, the bedside um, practice of the nurses and with the use of nurse activation orders and things like that, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Of course, our intensive care physicians, we made sure to include at least one or two of those. Um, other pharmacy colleagues, so I'm a clinical pharmacist within the intensive care unit, but of course we have pharmacists in the central operations, um, those pharmacists in the IV room, a lot of other potential areas in the hospital that this may impact, so making sure that we include those colleagues. Um, of course, include our nephrology colleagues and and 
when it comes to the use of diuresis, and then information technology, um, particularly in the day and age of the electronic uh, electronic medical record. Um, it's important to really figure out what your hospital has. Can you optimize um, the EMR to help you um, implement your protocol moving forward? And, and what's that process look like? And how can you really bring them into the, the uh, development phase? So again, brief second to maybe think about um, what stakeholders you would have at your institution for your protocol, maybe something a little bit different than, than what we have at, at my institution, um, but just a minute to kind of think through that. So moving forward, um, kind of going back to that electronic medical record um, portion. So at our institution for the implementation of our diuresis protocol, we did utilize our electronic medical record. Um, we've actually updated our EMR since then. So this is still the same protocol, but now a little bit of an outdated picture. Um, nonetheless, so this is what our protocol looks like. And I'll, so, I'll show you kind of the flow chart of what the protocol looks like in the non-EMR section as well. Um, but really, you know, making sure to prioritize daily fluid balance goals. Um, as an auto check. Um, the early selection of diuretics was was done by the pharmacist, which we'll, again, we'll talk about here in a second, um, with potential activatable orders in those patients that weren't meeting fluid balance goals for the day. And then other components to think about. Again, when developing a protocol, it's not always just the drugs, right? Um, so what are the monitoring parameters that we're going to need? Um, what are the other potential protocols that, that may be influenced um, with the use of this protocol? Obviously, with patients, if they are receiving aggressive diuresis, you have to think through, you know, do they have a Foley? Do they not have a Foley? How are we monitoring our eyes and nose? Um, our institution personally, um, it's probably has room to grow when it comes to daily weights and the assessment of daily weights. So that wasn't something that we based our protocol upon, but maybe something your institution could really, especially if it decreases the amount of Foley's um, or invasive catheters that you, you would have to use within your patient population, specifically um, when you start to think outside of the ICU and start thinking um, on a, on a ward-based level. So continuing through the development phase, um, at our institution, we met with all of our stakeholders, really relied on our PKPD data, and, and ultimately ended up with, with what you see on the screen. Um, the first of component, first component is to determine that daily, um, the patient-specific daily fluid balance goal. Um, this is something that we talk about every day in rounds at our institution. So this wasn't necessarily something that three years ago, um, as, as kind of cited with our earlier study that we mentioned, um, wasn't something that was assessed every day, um, but it became part of almost our fast hugs BID or part of our daily fluid or our daily rounding sheet was to talk about what our daily fluid balance is for each patient, um, particularly those that are on, on the ventilator. Um, discontinuation of maintenance fluids. Um, Again, I'm in a medical intensive care unit, so there are very, very, very few reasons to ever have a maintenance fluid running. So that was um, a pretty much ubiquitous um, component of our protocol. Again, maybe a little bit different um, for you at your institution. IV to PO as appropriate, as we've already mentioned, and then max concentration of, of, of drip medications or even you know IV piggyback medications. So I think this is an area um, Dr. Hawkins' group and a lot of folks are really starting to look at when it comes to what is the what is the component of diluents? What how much do these medications matter? How can we optimize um, the component of fluid balance that comes from those medications? So, consideration of max concentrating um, really where you can across the board. 
And then um, kind of next steps for us, um, assessment of previous exposure, um, then early, then selection of dosing based on renal function because of, of what we know um, in our current, current literature. We then had the nurse reassess at two hours. And then after that two hour time frame, the nurse was supposed to tell us whether or not the patient looked like they were responding appropriately. Um, and then they went on to assess um, hourly goals every six hours. So there's a lot of limitations with this, which we'll kind of talk about what we, what we did from there. Um, particularly, I'll go ahead and call out having a nurse assess uh, urine output at two hours and make a clinical decision probably wasn't the best idea. Everyone thought it was a great idea to begin with. Um, but that was definitely a component that needed a little bit of work. And then looking at the hourly goals. So we scheduled or we we decided that we would determine an hourly goal um, and then dose furosemide at default every six hours, um, just based on clinically what we had seen um, done often and, and kind of going from there, which we'll talk about here in a minute about potential considerations with that. Um, we also had a number of different hold parameters, especially because um, this was a new protocol. And in my experience um, and, and my clinical opinion, if you're really truly developing a protocol for the first time, so you're not just taking something that was studied and directly implemented into practice, um, I think it's it's better to be more cautious when talking about the safety of that protocol, uh, making sure that you're, you're really leaning towards that side of making sure that you're looking at too much versus too little to make sure we're really doing the best thing for our patients, right? There's tons of data out there that tells us you know, fluid overload is bad. There's quite a bit of data now saying de-resuscitation is great, um, but there's not a lot of data saying, okay, this is how you do it. And so we knew that we needed to target this. We weren't exactly sure that we were going to come up with the best way of how to do so on the first take. Um, so keeping an open mind in the process is obvious import, obviously important, and we'll talk through that with our, our next step. So then, of course, comes education. Hopefully, most of your stakeholders have already been involved at this point, and so it's really kind of going through those pathways and talking through education. But education, 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 super important, um, especially if using um, your bedside nurses, which I would it would be hard for me to imagine that you wouldn't be in some way having involvement of this protocol with bedside nursing staff. Um, we did all types of education. So we did um, group sessions. So our, our nursing um, staff have meetings every so frequently where all the nurses have to attend within different shifts. We educated at those meetings. Um, we have, um, I don't know if all institutions have this, we have potty training materials. So essentially it's signs in the bathroom um, of all of our intensive care units. So we put all of that type of education there, um, as well as one-on-one -on -one education at bedside during the implementation phase, really so that our nursing staff and our physician colleagues felt supported through this, which I think is another really, really important part. It's very easy to set something and drop it, um, as probably all of us, all of us know. Um, but really taking that time to be at bedside and assist with questions, especially during that first week or so, was super important. So all of the nurses had my pager um, number to be able to page me at any time of the day with questions. Um, and I actually didn't receive that many. Um, so it, it worked out quite well. Well, work-life balance was maintained, but definitely, I think, really helps with, with the individuals and the stakeholders if they feel supported throughout the process. So kind of our implementation phase, implementation in itself is probably the easiest, but again, um, moving through those institutional committee reviews prior to um, completing the education both with nurses and providers, and then the pre-implementation phases of just making sure everything looks okay, looking at it in the EMR, um, making sure there's no major questions from any of the key stakeholders moving forward, and then just going for it and, and seeing what happens. Um, it was definitely an exciting time for me uh, in this situation. Um, so evaluation is our next step. Um, of course, 
doing these types of things without, you know, looking if it's good, bad, or in between um, is a little bit, um, I don't know unrecommended in my opinion. Um, so there's a number of different potential metrics that you can think through um, with fluid stewardship protocols um, or just specifically RD resuscitation protocol. Um, there's clinical metrics, there's cost metric, always cost metric metrics, um, stakeholder surveys, and then compliance. So at our institution, we did um, mainly clinical metrics. We looked at compliance and then we also did surveys of some of our stakeholders. Um, we did not look at cost. However, that's probably something that is really important for a lot of institutions. Um, if you're like us, pharmacy costs get kind of split away from the division costs. So you may have a protocol that has like a significant improvement in mechanical ventilation days or ICU free days or something like that, hospital length of stay for our, our colleagues on the floor. And you, it may not even be seen when you're just looking at pure costs of the pharmaceuticals um, or even labs that you may be collecting for a study. So really thinking through those costs in a broad spectrum to make sure you're truly encompassing the impact of the protocol. How do you do that? So we did that with our red, a red cap survey. Um, so we really monitored these patients daily to make sure that everything was um, stable and, and all of our documentation was up to date. And so I highly recommend the um, utilization of a red cap um, for these types of things. So here's a screenshot of what ours looked like for our institution with this protocol. And then here are some other metrics to consider within whatever data collection um, device that you opt for. Um, weight measures, fluid overload, obviously the net, the net balances of fluids are pretty easy, um, low-hanging fruit there. Protocol adherence, um, this can be a little bit more difficult and time-consuming, um, but extremely important in my opinion. If the protocol fails to achieve the ultimate goal, it's important to understand why, and a lot of that comes in with the protocol adherence. Two, when you're looking at protocol adherence, the, the times when it wasn't adhered to are often really good signals of potential uh, ways of optimizing your protocol. For us, we had a lot of, um, of holds of a six dose. So patients weren't getting four doses of, of furosemide a day. They were really getting three doses of furosemide a day. And we utilized this kind of moving forward for, for the protocol update. Adverse events, obviously super important to think through medication safety components and anything that may potentially harm the patients and make sure we're not increasing risk need for renal replacement therapies, um, both as an efficacy and potential um, safety component, um, usage reports of other fluids, especially if you're thinking, okay, I'll, we're not even shooting for diuresis. We're just looking at a fluid stewardship policy within our institution, kind of rep reporting on those types of things. Um, electrolyte replacements, and of course, some of our key clinical outcomes, such as you know mechanical ventilation, hospital length of stay, um, reintubation, and, and things of that nature. So specifically, um, here are the, the main metrics that we considered with our protocol. And again, these were all components that all of our stakeholders felt to be important. Um, one place that I felt like our nursing colleagues were most concerned was the potential for hemodynamic instability. They were really concerned that we were going to over-diurese our patients um, and put them into some type of arrhythmia, profound shock state. We didn't, um, luckily, but we wanted to make sure that we eased their concerns. So we, we made sure that we were looking at hemodynamics throughout the day, making sure that we didn't have any types of nuanced arrhythmias or anything that really would cause a lot of alarm to our nursing colleagues. So we made sure to assess the outcomes that every stakeholder felt to be most important throughout throughout the, the implementation of this versus just maybe what we would see previously in the literature or those that um, come to come to our minds first as pharmacists. So kind of the next phase of the protocol after evaluation of your outcomes um, or protocol development, I'm sorry, is to have ongoing updates. So 
to me, you know, I don't know what your institution is like, but we have tons of protocols, at least, you know, quite a few years ago, we had a, a few protocols that hadn't been touched in years. Um, and you start to see the, the downside of that um, at bedside when you look at these protocols, you're like, oh, really, does our protocol actually still have that in there? Like maintenance fluids and a septic shock um, order set. Like, why? Why are we doing that? Um, so in my opinion, it's super important to continue to update these at some designated time frame. So whether it's every year, every six months initially, every two years, once you start to have some stabilization of use, um, really making sure that you update as frequently as necessary, um, really being able to extend that over time. So our protocol at our institution, we updated at the six-month time frame. Um, we pulled all of the data, assessed all of the data, um, and ultimately made updates on the basis of what we found um, with the data that was produced. So again, over half of our patients were empirically decreased to every eight-hour dosing. A lot of our fourth doses were missed for the day. There was no difference in safety events, so that was definitely reassuring um, for us at that point, at that six-month time frame. And then again, we surveyed our practitioners. We surveyed the nurses. We surveyed the physicians. Um, and then nurses gave us a lot of really quality feedback about these hourly urine output assessments, right? So that's something that they document every couple of hours. But if you're trying to um, get a cumulative urine output or really assess um, your, your trajectory of urine output, that's a little bit more difficult to do. They were having to add some numbers at bedside because they weren't auto-tabulating until the shift was ending. Um, and it was just taking more time than they were really comfortable with. So another really valuable point again, from perception surveys. Because of that, we actually did less work. We were able to make our protocol easier, in my opinion. So we changed our um, lab monitoring parameters and the, the dosing intervals to every eight hours. Um, and these coincided at um, every eight hours, so 8, 16, to 2,400. Labs were drawn at 7 a.m., 1,500, and 2,300. So they had those lab values back, could replace electrolytes before um, continuing to give the dose. And then you know, as far as our activatable orders, nurses were only having to activate those every eight hours now instead of every six hours because of our changes in, in dosing frequency. So here's the update to our protocol. You can see in red the, the main key changes. Um, the other big area of changes I, I, I kind of alluded to earlier is that uh, two-hour assessment. Um, I think it can be a, a difficult ask to uh, make some type of prediction. And this is honestly an ongoing limitation, I would say, in the fluid literature uh, and in the de-resuscitation literature is really the, the, predict, the prediction to response. Um, who's going to respond to diuresis? Who's going to respond um, to fluid? And, and how do we evaluate that clinically um, with variables that are readily available and practical to use at bedside? And so um, this is a little bit of an art. And so that two-hour urine output assessment um, now relies on the PharmD. Um, but I think we're really in the place to be able to assess that, right? I think we're the ones that are most comfortable with, you know, after I give a dose of, of a loop diuretic, when should this patient respond? What are the patient-specific considerations when thinking through this? Um, and what, what is their trajectory going to look like at that point? And so that was a change that was made based on um, some of our, the uh, from the feedback from our nursing colleagues, as well as those eight-hour changes, and then a couple of safety changes is listed in our, our light blue box, um, just based on what we were seeing um, in, in our data. We also made a couple more updates. So our attendees asked to use more of the protocol. We, Like I said before, we had really sh uh, shifted on the side of, of being most precautious um, when implementing this protocol. So we had a lot of exclusion criteria. However, um, we 
we actually bolstered our inclusion criteria after the attendee and said, we really want to be able to use this in, you know, maybe patients with acutely compensated heart failure that are on BiPAP and we want to prevent intubation or, you know, those patients that, yeah, they were on pressors for, for 12 hours ago, but we really feel like they're hemodynamically stable and we're ready to start diuresing them. And then we expanded this to other ICUs within our institution. Um, for the purposes of the research component, we did make some more exclusions, but these don't apply um, to, to us clinically at bedside. Those patients can still be included. So um, really want to take another second for the last uh, thought, think through for, for the group listening in today, but what are some metrics do you think at your institution that could easily and be readily available as well as really important for, for you for the potential protocol? Just take a minute to, to think through that. So key takeaways for my section, um, protocol development should consider current evidence um, as available, and then also think through your current um, clinical policy and as well as atmosphere, again, as, as Dr. Hawkins had mentioned earlier. Um, involving those key stakeholders is super important. Um, involving them in the education process is super important. I think people feel much more invested when it's a protocol that they worked on or they helped with or they had some type of input. Um, people feel much more um, readily or much more excited and much more interested in really making sure this protocol is, is done in the best way possible. And so implementing um, is important, but really it's that, you know, development phase and, and inclusion of, 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 of all of those stakeholders that have a role in this is, is super important, um, in my opinion. And then, of course, protocols should be consistently evaluated and updated. Um, this is a growing area. Uh, again, as Dr. Or, um, as Scott had mentioned earlier, Fluid uh, recommendations are now weakened and the surviving sepsis guidelines, we're starting to see more about the resuscitation. So it is likely that our protocol will be dated in, in five years. And so making sure that we're continuing to reassess um, your protocol as frequently as possible to make sure that you're really still optimizing it in the best way that you can. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.